Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's episode, Bart and Jenna pick three movies each from 1962 that they'd like to kiss, marry, or kill. Why am I always in the wrong without even knowing what for or what it's all about? That's not something I'm prepared to discuss with you, Mr. K. You'd better examine your own conscience. Hi, Jenna. Hey. So here we are with another Kiss, Mary Kill episode, 1962. What a year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure some important things happened. Kennedy was still president. What else was happening in 62? You already told me you didn't prepare anything. So just off the top of your head, what can you uh, <laughs> what can you think of that happened in 1962? Uh, how fast can I Google this while I stall for time? <laughs> Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe. Well, we don't have to get into that because this is a movie podcast. So we'll just talk about some of the movies of 1962. Cuban Missile Crisis was 62, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Walmart opened its first store in 62. I, I learned that much from one Google search. Wow. I had no idea Walmart was that old. I mean, neither. And because I just did one quick Google search, it might be completely wrong. So <laughs> what was hot at the theaters in 1962 in America and I'm going to assume across the world, Lawrence of Arabia. That was the big movie of the year. One of my favorites. I know you really like that movie. I like it, too. I love it. <laughs> We'll get to that eventually. Love. Number two is Longest Day. Number three, In Search of the Castaways. Uh, number four, That Touch of Mink. Number five, The Music Man. Number six, Mutiny on the Bounty, the Marlon Brando. It's a good movie. Number seven, To Kill a Mockingbird. Number eight, Hatari. Number nine, Gypsy. And ten, Bon Voyage. It always surprises me how these Disney movies that nobody talks about anymore, like In Search of the Castaways and Bon Voyage, make the top ten. These were huge movies, but all but forgotten now. Yep, I always think about things like that when we look at the current box office or, you know, people love to talk about like, oh, such and such pop singer is immortal. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> give it a year. You don't think they'll be humming Ariana Grande songs 30 years from now? <laughs> Thank you, next. Other movies that we've discussed on this podcast from 1962 include Cleo from 5 to 7, Knife in the Water, Dr. No, and Vive Sa Vie. There's also Jules and Jim and Lolita. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Manchurian Candidate, Cape Fear, Miracle Worker, In Britain, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, Billy Budd. Kid Galahad, the Elvis Presley remake. Every year in the 60s, there are at least a couple Elvis movies, right? Yeah, Girls, Girls, Girls also came out in 62, which there's not nearly as many girls in that movie as you want, but <laughs> uh, it's actually one of the better Elvis movies. I hope there are at least three girls. They kind of aren't even. Yeah. Like, there technically are, but... Uh, we've also got Exterminating Angel, the Boonwell movie. Uh, Leclis, the Antonioni, uh, also Mondo Cane came out that year, uh, sort of the, the first shockumentary, Mafioso, an Italian movie I really liked. And in Japan, we had Harakiri, Sanjuro, and Ozu's last film, An Autumn Afternoon. Pretty damn good year. Should we inform everybody about uh, how our Kiss, Mary Kill episodes run, or, or should we just jump right into it? Well, if you have listened, this is the 
third the third one we've yeah. done so basically you know it's like the old kiss mary kill game we pick one movie we want to try one movie that we love and then one movie that we just hate based on the year of 1962 here yeah just sort of a sampling and overview of what's come out and also um so you can get a little idea of how our tastes run. You know, hundreds and hundreds of movies come out every year. It's hard to give a full overview of what the year 1962 looked like in the film. But, you know, these are a few that mean something to us, either in a positive or negative way, or they've been on our watch list for a while. I don't know, I, I'm always hoping we can capture the zeitgeist of a year, but uh, we usually pick things that are so diverse, things from various countries, that it's it's hard to make any real generalizations about these movies. But uh, here's a bunch of movies from 1962, and we'll start with the movies that have been on Jenna and my watch list for quite some time. Why don't we start with yours? Well, my kiss choice was David and Lisa. Directed by Frank Perry and written by his wife, Eleanor Perry. And part of why I chose this movie is because I hadn't seen it. I wanted to check it out. I like Frank Perry. I've liked his other movies. I haven't seen all of them, but I love Last Summer and I like Play It As It Lays. And um, I was intrigued. I wanted to see what this one was about. And uh, David and Lisa is essentially about... A kid that gets brought to a psychiatric clinic to stay <laughs> forever by his mother gets dropped off at a mental hospital, essentially. They keep referring to it as a school, though, so it's it's not like he's being institutionalized. It's more it's a little more casual than that. It seems like that sort of 1960s like boarding school for where you drop off your unwanted child, <laughs> mm-hmm. which um, you know seems to come up a lot. David is, he seems very sort of, uh, he's on the spectrum for sure. It's not really, I mean, he seems very functional. He is a little bit Asperger-y and he doesn't want to be touched ever. If you touch him, he freaks out. That's his big issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> but otherwise, he's, he's pretty functional, I think. And then he meets at this school a, a whole host of different people in various states of, you know, mental uh, unwellness. Of course, the titular Lisa who is a girl with two personalities, one that speaks in rhyme. Lisa is the rhyming one, and Muriel is the more serious, depressed little girl. Mute. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, this movie's just about them befriending each other, and it's kind of like a a couple days in the life of these people. And part of what really intrigued me about this is that it's like, it's a whole genre of, of films that interest me. I end up liking these mental illness films and things about people on the fringes of society or things that I find far more... Uh, relatable than like you know the cheerleader movie so (laughs) (laughs) like with my own issues I find these things very relatable but this one I was hoping for something that would be as gripping and intriguing and empathetic especially in 62 at a time where being not textbook perfect you know coming off the 50s especially was still something that people frowned upon and people didn't have very much patience for those who were outside of the ordinary so I, I was hoping that this would be a uh, kind of uh, empathetic and maybe sympathetic portrait of mental illness, which it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. 
I was a little disappointed with this movie because I maybe in part because I had such high hopes and I found it to be a little bit elementary. But you like this movie a lot. You've seen this movie. I love this movie. Yeah, I've always considered it one of my favorites. And and watching it this time through, it's got some problems for sure. I don't think, I mean, because Lisa can only either rhyme or be mute and she's so childlike, they don't do a particularly good job developing her character. Much more interesting is the relationship between David and the therapist. Should have called it David and Alan instead of David and Lisa. But I feel like... Definitely, it brings up the stigma against mental illness and how it was hard for... I mean, it's still difficult for people to accept. It's hard to accept that someone in your family has a mental illness. And, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and it, I I mean, it borders on camp. Part of what I really like about this movie is that it's serious. Like, it deals with these issues seriously, but it's not afraid to go a little bit over the top. And and they're... My favorite scene is when they're at the train station and the family is sort of freaked out by this group of mentally ill students and uh, the dad yells at their caretaker and and says that they should be locked up. And um, yeah, it's a bunch of screwballs spoiling the town. Yeah, and then the this family leaves the station and the and the, the group of students follows them out chanting a bunch of screwballs spoiling the town and uh, i love that i get chills during that scene but i could see how that would just you know rub somebody else the wrong way that was a great scene i mean like that and it was yeah that that was kind of more of what i was expecting in some way is that you see all these kids from this hospital uh boarding school coming together and grouping together and standing up for themselves in the face of just some bigot jerk they're literally doing nothing. They're all sort of keeping to themselves waiting for a train. And, and this guy just comes over and pushes his family away in hopes that it's not catching or, you know, he's just super obnoxious. And it was interesting and also a little sad because this, of course, still happens today, unfortunately. I feel like now it happens more on, you know, the Internet when people either uh, can can hide their names or they don't care because they're sitting at home. They don't realize their name is directly on Facebook and they like to spew nasty shit to people. But um, yeah, that was definitely, that was one of the more interesting scenes. Yeah, the, th- the thing that bugged me about this movie was exactly, it was Lisa. She's like typical nonsense 60s mental illness. She didn't seem at all believable because she only speaks in rhyme and it's like all childlike rhyme and it's not even real rhyme sometimes. <laughs> you know, it goes back to like, um, I mean, now the, granted this is far earlier, but you know, the LSD movies that we had discussed where you, you know, you have like, it's all Alice in Wonderland. That's like the, as far as anyone's imagination can get <laughs> apparently is just Alice in Wonderland. And that's what this felt to me like also storybook um, children's rhyming and, not that that can't happen. It's just that it just didn't ring as true as someone like David, who seemed far more nuanced and interesting. And he's someone who's meant to be this sort of hyper intelligent character who then has this one, you know, he can't touch. And if anyone touches him, he freaks out and, and loses it. And then, you know, of course, the the female character is anything but she's regressive. She's a child. She's forever a child. And, you know, that's her problem, which I feel like is... Also, it's kind of very typical of like the mentally ill man is a genius, uh, you know, who is too good for this world. And the woman is, a you know, can't get it together enough to have babies or something. <laughs> so that's kind of what bummed me out. 
I think my favorite scene in this movie, though, was the scene where David uh, leaves the school and comes home and his father is trying to connect with him. And he just fundamentally doesn't understand that David's not acting this way as a choice. And his and that was kind of campy, too, is that the father has this one sided monologue that kind of like jumps around from his guilt uh, it's like, well, it's like guilt to bargaining to bribery, you know, saying like, oh, I'm sorry I didn't raise you right. Maybe we should have gone fishing more to like, well, what if I take you fishing tomorrow? And, you know, this sort of just completely doesn't understand that and, and making David feel terrible all along, you know, that the father thinks, oh, this is my fault and I did this to you. And, you know, let's try and undo this. And why aren't you willing to undo this? And and poor David is just, you know, trying to be accepted. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and you really feel sorry for the father because he's trying and it's, uh, you know, there's nothing he can do. But I mean, I think the movie's really about establishing trust. That's the thing that David can't get from either of his parents. He can't trust that they'll be there for him or, or, you know, work in his best interest. And I actually think it's really sweet the way that David and Lisa, you know, establish trust in each other and work out a few things together in a way that the adults, the authority figures in their lives could never help them out with. Although Dr. Swinford is pretty sympathetic. He's a good therapist and he does manage to break down David a bit and, and get him to trust him. I really just think the movie's kind of honest about, you know, about emotional needs. And I, I, I think that that's what sells me on the movie. And it's not really about mentally ill people. It's not like on a shop corridor or one floor over the cuckoo's nest where you get these moments with actors trying to like reproduce these you know various types of mental illness i feel like you relate to david and lisa in this movie more than you're generally supposed to relate to mentally ill people in in other movies of this type david and lisa are they're you and me they're not you know these others and and i think that's why this movie works so well for me yeah that's very true and I mean, I won't say I didn't like this movie because I totally did, actually. I thought this was definitely a great movie. It's it's definitely above average for the 60s. And there's some wonderful sequences. I love there's this like really creepy clock dream that David keeps having where he cuts people's heads off with the arms of the, the clock, which is awesome. And they even end up like they kind of get into it. They get into the psychology of it, which I appreciated and I enjoyed. And in general, I love how this was shot. I mean, there's a lot of these really beautiful close-ups on expressions and faces that, as you said, make everyone sympathetic, but also, uh, you know, extremely human. They're, they never feel like others, and, and you're always on their side. And the people that feel like the freaks in the, in the movie are the people like that guy at the train station who can't look at these people as as human beings. And the mom, she's the biggest freak in the yeah <laughs> i felt a little bad for her too actually but she i mean she's definitely not helping any situations well, it's, she's very self-centered and all of david's problems that she she just sort of filters through this idea of how it's affecting her and how his illness is keeping her from having a perfect family you know, her an ideal son and she's convincingly awful <laughs> I will say it. I don't want to totally spoil the ending here because I do think people should watch this movie. But the first person that David ends up finally trusting enough to touch has been sleeping on the streets of New York City in a crowded tourist area. And that's literally the worst person he could have touched. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm... Yeah, that's true. I, I, that never even occurred to me if it's, uh, you know, it's really the germs that he thinks are, will kill him. 
he'll when his freakouts when he's being touched is, "Are you trying to kill me?" Yeah, gross. Well, she's always filthy. She's always got dirt all over her face, and <laughs> maybe that's part of the idea. <laughs> I guess maybe that's the true romance. Mm-hmm. It's also a really low budget movie, and you can tell, and you have to sort of forgive it certain things based on the budget. But I, I'm really kind of fascinated by this period, this early 60s American independent scene where, you know, it's not just exploitation movies trying to get teens to come to the movie. There, there are a good number of filmmakers who are making serious independent art films. And, you know, we watched Something Wild from 61, which was one. And, you know, Cassavetes in, in 59 was, with Faces is really like sort of kicked off the American independent scene and, and some of these other movies that, that I've really enjoyed are following in its wake. But there aren't many independent feature art films coming from America in the 60s. And I always seek them out when they're available to watch. And uh, I don't know, I, I guess it kind of led up to the Hollywood brat scene in the in the late 60s where the independent film movements or became mainstream but these these early 60s independent films are really pretty fascinating i hope we stumble on a bunch more in our travel through the 60s well well, you're definitely going to see more of those out of us than the uh whatever these what was that thing about mink (laughs) oh that touch of mink (laughs) oh that's cary grant and uh, oh yeah yeah and doris day yeah but it's yeah both people that i like but (laughs) it's not you know i'll watch it but Anything else you have to say about David and Lisa? Nope. Nope. (laughs) All right. Well, then it's my turn. The Inheritance. Japanese film directed by Masakai Kobayashi. I've seen a bunch of really incredible films by him. He made this three-part, nine-and-a-half-hour film called The Human Condition that came out previous to this uh, about a pacifist who's sort of forced into doing things that go against his conscience when, when Japan invades Manchuria. And it's really one of the most overwhelming film experiences I've ever had and uh, I've kind of you know I've been picking away at the movies in Kobayashi's oeuvre for a while Hirakiri which also came out in 1962 is, is maybe his best known and it's one of the great samurai movies and it's fantastic but I, I really have been wanting to delve deeper into his catalog and so when I saw The Inheritance was a, was a movie of his that was available to me from this year I, I, I jumped on it it's not a period film, which is what Kobayashi is known for. I mean, uh, Human Condition was set during World War II or, or before World War II. And, you know, his samurai films are set in the Edo period. And Owen oh, Kwaidan, his ghost story movie, was also set during the same era. But I was interested to see what he would do in a modern setting. And I have to say I was a little bit disappointed. This one is kind of a satire, a dark comedy about uh, the lengths that people will go to to get money to <laughs> swindle an old miserable man out of his inheritance it's fun this 
wealthy business owner is dying from cancer and he doesn't have any legitimate children but he's got three illegitimate children that he knows about and so he sends his employees out to find these three children so they can inherit his money but instead the people who have been sent out to find these illegitimate children come up with various schemes to get the money for themselves and it sounds like a lot of fun, and it, it is in parts, but part of the problem is there are just too many characters, and you never get too involved in any particular scheme. There's nobody really sympathetic in this movie, so there's nobody you're rooting for to get away with getting this guy's money. And you don't really care about the old dying man because he's been a jerk all his life. You know, he just, he uses women, and he, you know, it's just a typical corporate president. Everybody is his... Uh, it's his servant. Everybody's there for him to use. So uh, I think maybe if it had focused on just a couple of these characters, I might have enjoyed it more. But but you actually really liked this movie, didn't you? Loved it. Because everyone is just so evil and everyone is varying degrees of evil that I no longer needed to even care about the characters. It was almost uh, like Game of Thrones or something, you know, yeah. to, be, to be super contemporary. But it's like everyone's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but someone's gonna win so and it almost it was like a scorsese movie in that way to me you just want to see you know like there's this one guy this one horrible figurehead in the middle and, and he's truly disgusting and you think he's just a creep you think at first he's just this sort of philandering typical kind of ceo type totally doesn't care as you said about anyone everyone's around him to to do his bidding you know he has this very young wife who uh, the second that he thinks he he says out loud he has cancer and, and she just couldn't care less. <laughs> and at first you're like, well, you know, okay, like maybe he's not a great husband. And clearly, you know, he's had all of these affairs. So he's obviously not been so faithful. Not that you get the sense that this was a marriage of love anyhow. But it, as it sort of comes out and you kind of follow his secretary as sort of the main character, but it dips out too often to really understand her completely. But it helps for the mystery and it helps for the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, it keeps you on your toes as for who's going to win, you know, in the end. It sort of turns out that this guy, I mean, not only is he a womanizer and a sexual harassment nightmare, but he's also just a violent rapist. And you kind of get the sense that all of these illegitimate children were, were born of rape because none of the mothers are, are very excited to hear, even though that hey, um, this guy's dying and he wants to leave his inheritance. If you're worthy is the other asterisk he puts on everything. And it sort of comes out that, you know, one of the children is dead and one's a prostitute and the other one's this dude bro hooligan. Now you have these two people scheming and they're really awful themselves. You can see it's, it's like genetic, uh, the sort of cruelty inherent. And I don't even want to spoil some of the twists and turns because they were actually genuinely shocking. I just thought this movie was so sleazy and it was so evil and it was so clever. And I really just loved seeing all these spiders that are scurrying. You know, this cancer diagnosis is the thing that sort of, you know, lifts the rock and everyone, everyone kind of <laughs> scurries around under it. And I don't know anything about the director, unfortunately, in my, in my other life on Back Row. Uh, I even started a, a podcast segment on the other podcast I'm on about the fact that, you know, I grew up with anime and I grew up with 
manga and yet i've really ignored classic japanese cinema <laughs> which is really embarrassing and terrible because i then i i you know get assigned to watch this or something and i'm like this is amazing like now i want to see everything and if, if you're telling me that this was disappointing for you having really liked this director now i'm like super excited to see what else he's done yeah i mean maybe that was the problem i was just coming into it with certain expectations on your other podcast you did ozu and there were some ozu actors in this. Well, it was made for Shochiko Studios, which is Ozu Studio. So that's probably why there were a lot of overlap of actors. But Senzo, the dying CEO, is in, is in a bunch of Ozu movies. And uh, I know the secretary was in early spring, but she's mostly in Kobayashi movies, as is Tatsuya Nakadai, who's one of the most famous Japanese actors from this period. And he's in just about everything that Kobayashi's done. His, um, he's the, the main guy in human condition. He's only got a small role in this one as Furukawa, who seduces the prostitute daughter to get half of her share in the inheritance. I don't know, maybe that's another reason that I, I didn't uh, connect with this movie, is I, I expected him to be the lead, and he just is relegated to a pretty minor role. I mean, I love classic Japanese cinema, and I feel like I still have a lot to learn about it. I'm hoping on this podcast we can really delve into the Japanese new wave, because the 60s Japanese cinema is not something I have a great handle on. I, I know more about 50s Japanese movies, maybe. Kurosawa movies and the Ozu and the Mizuguchi and, and all of those. And the one Japanese movie that we've done, oh, the Warped Ones, was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I felt like the one hooligan son sort of captured that energy of the Warped Ones. In that jazz club. Yeah. And the jazz soundtrack on this was pretty solid. Yeah, the soundtrack was really good. But it felt to me like Kobayashi was, you know, he's sort of part of the old guard of Japanese directors, but he with this movie he was trying to know grab a piece of that nikatsu crime genre audience and uh it didn't feel like a natural fit for him necessarily it was funny i was looking up the movie after i watched it and i saw the sort of standard you know response to this film is that this is a commentary on societal greed but i just kind of liked it i mean like and maybe that was part of what i i didn't have the expectation that this was a larger commentary so much as I just appreciate it. I mean, it is, it's obviously a commentary on greed, but like, I was just happy to see it as this sort of game of chess and to sort of see everyone overthinking themselves to the point where they screw themselves out of winning. And that to me was, you know, there's a lot of, as you said, a lot of moving pieces and a lot of people. And it's, it is a little hard to keep track of everybody, but when everything sort of starts to come together because people start to knock themselves off the board, it was just delightful. Mm -hmm. And you know from the beginning, because uh, the secretary is the narrator, so you know from the beginning that she ends up with at least a big chunk of the inheritance because she's right. now, you know, wealthy and window shopping. And, and um, you know, so you're, you're wondering the whole time, well, how does this most unlikely candidate for gaining this guy's inheritance end up getting it? So that's the part of the plot that really kind of keeps you going. And the lengths that she does go through is wild. Yeah. <laughs> I never in a million years would have expected where this movie ends up really and how dark this movie goes. I don't necessarily buy all the twists. That's another one of my problems with this movie. Homicide is involved and I don't quite buy that. And, you know, a lot of these sort of legal twists seem a little convenient, but I don't know. It's fun. It was just a kiss and not a Mary. Right. But speaking of Mary, now's the part of the episode where we get to the movies that we absolutely love from 1962 
and you chose Tarkovsky's featured debut, Ivan's Childhood. Yes, I love, this is one of my favorite movies, and I love Tarkovsky, and he didn't do too much in the 60s that I can think of. Andrei Rublev might be his only other one. Yeah, and Ivan's Childhood, this is a movie to me, I watched this for the first time in college, and funny enough, I was not a film major, I was a history major in college, and I actually, my focus was on World War One, and this is a World War Two movie. But this kind of brings together all things that I that really interest me. And I actually watched this for the first time in a class about Russian films. It kind of really made me fall in love with Russian movies, which I kind of took this class as a lark because I just, you know, <laughs> I was bored. And I was like, well, I like movies and I like Russian novels. And this movie just, I mean, it just totally blew my mind. It's a World War II a movie about a child's spy soldier, essentially, Ivan who is, I don't even, I mean, like they're on the, you know, they're in, they're in Russia fending off German invaders. And Ivan is, how old is he? He's got to be like 12, I think they say. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, for children to me, I don't know. Like they all look like, I'm like, I don't know, anywhere from three to 12. But um, yeah, you know, he's very young, too young. And the movie is sort of told between his dream life of remembering his previous life before this war and remembering his mother and remembering his sister in these sort of really beautiful dreams and then interspliced with his reality. Which is also pretty dreamlike. Right, which is dreamlike, but in the most dystopian kind of dream. And it's only dreamlike because it's just shot beautifully. This is one of the most beautiful films. And funny enough, you know, we it, previously on A Kiss, Mary Kill, we watched Letter Never Sent. Which now watching Yvonne's childhood, having watched Letter Never Sent, I'm like, ah, there's so much that they bit off of Letter Never Sent that they just sort of redo in Yvonne's childhood. And it did, I have to admit, it took a little bit of the magic away from me. But I still love this movie and it still, it can make me cry. So (laughs) it's absolutely one of the most beautiful movies to look at ever made. Every shot you could hang on your wall. Exactly. There's a sequence in a birch tree forest where you even have like, I mean, the whole, I think Yvonne's childhood for me, the whole point of of this film is, you know, there's many points, but the sort of main theme is loss of innocence, obviously. And this is a staunchly anti-war film, which is interesting. And this is a time where you actually saw a lot of this coming forth from Russia. And Tarkovsky, he's even in his way critiquing Russia to the slightest little bit that he could you know, the Moss film logo shows up in the first five seconds. And that's when suddenly you hear the sound of a cuckoo going off, you know, and it's very clearly this sort of just like a like a quick little dig before he goes off about like, oh, how horrible war is. And oh, those Germans <laughs> and the Russians, you know, like I didn't even it, pick up on that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I will give credit to that one for, to my class who who pointed it out. But it's little details like that 
um, that that made me fall in love with this movie and made me fall in love with Russian cinema, which we've brought up, uh, you know, and then the other Russian movies that we have discussed, because there's so many of these little things where this is the only thing that the artist could get away from that censors didn't even notice. That's like the movie behind the movie kind of thing. But this movie, I don't know, it's just it's so beautiful and, it, and it, it's so depressing. And uh, that birch tree forest is such a beautiful sequence. And you essentially have this female soldier, Masha, you know, being pursued by Captain Colin. Colin is trying to flirt with her and she's much younger than him. I mean, she's a teenager, but she's, you know, really not interested and doesn't know what to even do with male advances. And um, there's this gorgeous scene of him. I mean, it's terrible because he's forcing her to kiss him. So, I mean, as far as consent goes, not very fun, but um, it's this beautiful scene of him holding her above this like trench as he stands and it's just shot in in such a gorgeous way that it takes her even away from the fact that this is kind of a creepy situation for this woman. <laughs> but, um, you know, the point is, and even Captain Colin realizes that he's being the aggressor and he's being a creep and he backs off because she's, this is, you know, the last shred of her innocence that she's holding on to. There's just so much nuance and there's so much sympathy and empathy in this film that it's really heartbreaking. I think Tarkovsky is fantastic scene by scene. Like every scene in this is intrinsically interesting in and of itself. How they all fit together is always kind of a puzzle for me. I mean, Masha, for instance, I'm not sure why the movie decides to take a break and focus on her for a while. I mean, thematically, sure, it's it's another loss of innocence story like Yvonne's. But I mean, narratively, it's actually this movie's a little... I didn't realize quite how simple it is, really. And this time through, it didn't add up to that much for me other than a bunch of beautiful-looking scenes that deal with the horrors of war and the loss of innocence and the children who suffer from war. But even that was sort of undercut by, towards the end, Tarkovsky takes this documentary footage of actual dead children. I mean, not only did that, to see that is makes you physically ill, but it seemed a little irresponsible to me to to use that in this movie as the real like gut punch because in tone it's so different than the rest of the movie it's sort of the rest of this movie is so dreamlike and beautiful that the harsh reality of this documentary footage doesn't seem to connect to what we've been seeing in the rest of the movie at all what what did you think about that you know, it's funny, in the in the past, I felt like this was more disjointed, but this viewing, I actually, it all kind of came together a lot more for me. And even the his dreams in the past, which have always just been intriguing, I didn't always understand them. And I feel like this time, I actually really connected with all of them and, and felt like, actually, you know what, it, it also is, it's like a better version of Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> hmm which is a movie I hated, actually. I hate it. It looks yeah. beautiful. There's so much good character design in that. But I hated Pan's Labyrinth, which I know is an unpopular opinion. No, I agree with you. I also dislike it. And I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, there's a lot connecting that movie to this movie. And the thing that sucks about Pan's Labyrinth to me is that you have a child who is in her dreams having a worse reality than her actual reality, which is so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so she has this really violent wartime situation. And then in her dreams, she's being like chased and murdered by these even worse creatures. Whereas Yvonne's childhood, you have him in his dreams dreaming about something better, but it gets interrupted by violence. So he dreams about stuff like his mother, who's like super beautiful, telling him like these sort of innocent child things. And then suddenly she's shot. 
mm-hmm. you know, which is just awful. And then you also kind of realize, I love that scene where Yvonne's left alone in the bunker and he's throwing a knife around and he's sort of playing war games with himself because he's bored and they won't let him come out. And he ends up hitting the light. And then you realize he's more afraid of the dark than he is of war. And in fact, he wants to be out there fighting. So it was like this sort of weird disconnect of what this child's reality now is, because this is all he knows. Like he has these dreams of a better time and a place, but it continues on for him. You know, there isn't a, well, before there was this and now I have this. And in some ways he's like, well, this is reality now and I'm moving forward with it. I mean, for the, you know, the ending with the the real life footage of like uh, Goebbels family all murdered and stuff like that, I feel like that was just to hammer in the bluntness of it because everything else is sort of so nuanced and sort of dealing with maybe the inner psyche that this is just the other side of the coin essentially and that like this is here's the actual you know reality of what everyone's looking at it was jarring but it worked for me enough it wasn't necessary particularly but maybe it was just like if you guys didn't get it And it was all German violence, so I, and I don't know if maybe that was also something that he was maybe forced to put in, just to hammer home, like, and the Germans are evil, you know, like, in, in the end, so. Yeah, well, it's just that all of the movie can also sort of be interpreted as Yvonne's fantasy. I mean, when he first shows up at the bunker, he's escaped across the river to find his guardian, who's a, a colonel in the Russian army. But when he shows up in the Russian bunker, the lieutenant there, Galtsev, who is trying to help him, doesn't believe Ivan's story. A lot of this seems to be about Ivan sort of overestimating his importance. Like he sort of sees himself as this important Russian spy and playing an important role in what's going on in this encounter with the German army across the river. Right. And when he first comes to the bunker, he's very much like, call captain, call like, you know, this very higher up captain. And, and that Lieutenant Galtsev refuses to do so because he doesn't believe that a child, like literally a child that they found in the, in the woods, you know. <laughs> and then it turns out that when he finally does, he calls it, he calls like a lesser captain. And the, that guy says like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And then Yvonne insists that he calls this higher up. And when he does, the higher up is thrilled. I think it was Colin, uh, Captain Colin, or who, who answers and is like, oh, my God, Yvonne, we'll be right there. <laughs> yeah, most of the movie is these, you know, several army officers who s- sort of feel responsible for Yvonne and want to, like, keep him safe and sort of... Or, you want to be his guardian once the war is over, but Ivan is, you know, thinks that he's, you know, playing an important role in the war and doesn't want to be protected. Wants to be out there on the front lines, or, or you know, sneaking around and and you know, stealing boats from the Germans. And like, obviously, a lot of this is him wanting to get his revenge on the Germans for killing his mother. But it sort of plays out like this movie is his fantasy of the important role that he wants to play in the war. And it sort of keeps getting interrupted by all of these protectors trying to keep him from playing this role. And I think that's really interesting, but it also sort of keeps the movie in this sort of dreamlike space where when reality comes crashing in and that documentary footage in the end, it's hard to know how to place that. And then there's a coda after that documentary footage that, I feel like it doesn't hit as hard because you're back into this sort of fantasy dream world after this documentary footage. And that coda doesn't pack the punch that I think Tarkovsky wants it to. Oh, I thought it was pretty depressing. (laughs) (laughs) 
I also love that scene in the back of the apple truck, Yvonne's flashback to you know, hanging out with his sister and they're in the back of this truck and the forest is sort of a negative shot of probably the birch forest because it's, it's dark on light. So it's, it's just this inverse forest and it's, it's so beautiful, but it's another one of those, one of his flashback scenes where everything is perfect and idyllic in his, uh, you know, before the war and it's sort of interrupted where the apple cart spills and, uh, all these horses come out on the beach and start eating all these apples. And it's the way that the cart swerves and all of these things, it leads this like beautiful, there's so many apples overflowing from this cart. It leaves this beautiful path of apples along the beach and all these horses come out and they start eating it. It, I have to like, it, it straight up made me cry this time. <laughs> I don't know if it's just because I'm dealing with some shit, but it was like, it's just so beautiful. It's just such this like perfect childhood image that like never existed. Yeah. And I'm sure it's symbolic, too, although I don't know what the symbol means. That's part of my problem with Tarkovsky, too, is that his movies are packed with symbols and there's so much visual information there that is sort of beautiful in its own right, but it probably means something as well, but I don't know what what a lot of it means. I kind of just took it this time around as just being this sort of bucolic fantasy, which it maybe is about the sort of fantasy of the farmer and the countryside worker, to some degree, but I mean, there might, there definitely easily could be something else I'm missing. Now we get to talk about my, I have a lot of favorite films from 1962, but the one that I wanted to discuss on this episode was Orson Welles' The Trial, based on the Franz Kafka novel. feel like it often gets overlooked amongst Orson Welles's films and it might be my favorite. It was Orson Welles' favorite for a long time. Yeah, I, re- I read that too that it's Orson Welles considered it his best movie. I am kind of a sucker for uh, absurdist dark fantasies and Brazil has for a long time been a, one of my all-time favorite movies and Brazil is clearly inspired by this movie on a visual level in, in so many ways. The first time I saw the trial, I think that's what really struck me more than anything was that here's this movie that was doing a lot of the things that, that one of my all-time favorite movies was doing you know, 20 years before that movie. And uh, it seems like you and I are both suckers for movies that have kind of a dream logic to them. I, I think we both are looking for movies that resemble dreams. You know, it's funny. I think both of our love choices are actually very similar stylistically, at least, and almost thematically, even though they're totally wildly different movies. Yeah, you can make them connect thematically, although I'm not sure we need to necessarily. The trial is just you know about this. Um... It's Kafka. It's Kafka. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> it's so it's uh, it's very Kafka-esque. So it's just Joseph K, played by Anthony Perkins, is woken up by the police coming to his room and and arresting him, but they don't tell him what he's being arrested for. And so the movie just plays out in this sort of dreamlike sequence of events where Joseph K. is trying to work out a defense for himself, not knowing what crime he's committed and 
seeking out a lawyer and a lawyer is very self-serving and just finding that he has to deal with this bureaucracy that's impossible to deal with and it's I've always sort of seen this movie as anti-bureaucratic, anti-government, you know, about the corruption of government institutions, but really it's more about how nobody is really uh, innocent, about how we all feel guilty because none of us are innocent in our thoughts and we're accused of a crime and we can't necessarily say we're innocent, but even though we don't know what crime we're being accused of. And I, I think it's easy to relate to when you know, you're driving down the road and, and you see a cop by the side of the road and, you're, and you keep checking your rear view mirror to see if the cop turns around to follow you and pull you over even though you haven't been speeding. Don't think you've done anything wrong. I love Kafka. I've, I've read this book. I've, I never actually saw this movie, which is nuts because I love Orson Welles. And I, this is something that I've been just meaning to watch for ages. And it was never the right time. You know, like you want to be ready for something like this. And I had such high expectations. I mean, there's that line in the end where, where Kay is saying, I think this is the conspiracy that the court wants me to believe, to persuade us all that the world is crazy, formless, meaningless, and absurd. And that's the dirty game. And I've lost my cause. And that's kind of what I think this whole movie is about. It's about the structure that is imposed upon us that nobody questions that is meaningless. It's not even just feeling guilty when someone tells you or somebody even is a figure of authority standing near you and makes you sort of even question it's this question of why do you question that it's almost this you know like why why is it that we so believe in this structure that we're so willing to go along with this logic when the whole idea of this even being logical is illogical <laughs> you know so waking up in your bedroom and seeing two men standing there saying you're under arrest and you saying, well, I didn't do anything wrong. You're, the real thing that you should be saying is like, who are you and what right do you even have? And, and what could I even have possibly done that, that you're allowed to even be here? And that's the beauty of this movie and the beauty of Kafka in general is that this is the questioning of all of these things at once. And then this idea that like, why is it that I'm guilty? You know, and that you can be guilty just on virtue of being alive. And we never find out what exactly Kay has done and he's very indignant over the fact that he's been found guilty for no reason, but he's also still very willing to go through the structure of the law to fight his case when it's very clear that the structure of the law is complete horseshit. <laughs> well, I mean, Kay's crime was being born, right? You're born into this world where you haven't made the rules and just to keep track of all the rules and to even know what you're supposed to do with yourself in life is impossible. A lot of this movie is him trying to focus on creating a defense for himself and to get these charges cleared and to even find out what the charge is. But he keeps getting distracted by these various women. Like, you know, sex is uh, in this movie is, you know, Romy Schneider shows up as just this woman who wants to seduce him and Kay just gets distracted from his task, from his job, from his guilt even. And, uh, you know, I love how this movie is structured, where he's trying to follow this path through life to find the meaning, but so much of what happens is just a distraction, and a lot of that has to do with these women, like these thoughts of sex, or these, you know, he's distracted by this adventure where he has to punch a magistrate who is 
making the courtroom guard's wife have sex with them. And I, I love the women in this movie because they're so willing to help because they're all similarly persecuted over nothing. They're all in these positions that are lesser than, especially with all these magistrates and all of these powerful men. And so Kay gravitates towards them because they're sympathetic and willing to help him besides even just being visually distracting. But they're also so complicit. It's genius because it's the same thing. They're all telling him, yeah, it really doesn't make any sense. And this is super unfair. But I mean, he wants me for sex. So I got to go do that right now. <laughs> you know, like, yep, I just leave my husband right here. And, you know, and he understands, you know, this is just the way of the world. And this is how it all works. That's what I love about Kafka in general. I feel like the way that he writes is the way that I dream. And I've never seen it done so well on screen as Orson Welles did here. You know, there's so much of just eyes watching you continually, unwanted people pouring into rooms and, and waiting for you. And, you know, you have to threaten them with violence to get them out of there. And every time you close a door, another door creeps open. And then you close that one and the first one's opening. And you, that also that sort of idea that that sort of dream, like that scene with him with the artist, where he starts to become so overwhelmed with all of the minutia and, and craziness, he realizes that this artist really doesn't know how to get him out of this and he's saying well if you follow this thing from you know point a to point b and then you might have to you know divulge on z and then take it back to w and you know he suddenly he's becoming drowsy and he's becoming ill and he can't even keep his eyes open and it's like that that's sort of being overcome with that strange weight of just the world <laughs> all of that stuff is so fantastic and the thing that really struck me about this movie and and i feel like the only thing i almost want to talk about the trial is just how wonderfully it's shot and how just technically gorgeous it is. And because that's really what makes this just so fantastic. It's just pure skill of, of Orson Welles' direction. And like the fact that nobody can walk in a straight line in this movie unless they're literally forced to by structures. That every time someone walks into an open room, they seem to zigzag around this room and creep along corners of it. No one seems to be able to walk straight. Well, the cops know the rules, so they know that you're supposed to zig here and zag there. And Kay is just walking, trying to follow the right path, but not knowing the rules. And the fact that he's not zigged and zagged in the same way that the cop has makes him guilty. Like everything that he's doing that's not done exactly the way it's supposed to be, because how the hell are you supposed to know the way it's supposed to be done, is just adding to Kay's feelings of guilt. But yeah, the set design in this movie is unbelievable. You know, even more than the camera work. I think all of the interiors in this movie were all shot in the train station that's now the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. But at the time, it was just an abandoned train station. And there are certain shots in there, if you've ever been to the, the Orsay Museum, it's like, it's so obvious that this is where it's shot. But it's, you know, it was just so run down at the time. And they're just, you know, all walls built within walls and it's a perfect dream space you know Kay goes to Hassler's office apartment whatever I mean all of these spaces sort of run into each other and they you know a door from somebody's apartment opens into Kay's office so it is you know you're in this dream space but the you know all these spaces are just filled with stuff all the like hundreds and hundreds of people at desks in Kay's office and all the piles and piles of papers in Hassler's office. and Very ahead of its time open office plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there's so much to look at in this movie. There's so many extras in this movie. Yeah. So many from like naked old people to like workers to everything. I, I mean, it's just it's 
amazing. I just, you know, it's so funny. You get so used to seeing CGI'd in crowds that, like, I look back at these types of movies or even older, like, you know, especially those, like, 1920s, like, war movies and stuff where it's, like, literally, like, flaming things being thrown at <laughs> large crowds. But, like, this one, it's just, like, it's just like amazing and fascinating to see that he got like hundreds and hundreds of people to just show up and pretend to type. I mean, Orson Welles just has such an eye for movement and lighting and, and art direction and framing. And, and, and Anthony Perkins is great in this. He's terrific. Yeah. And Jeanne Moreau, I, I really like too. She's the one female character who actually has a fully fleshed out character. She's the nightclub dancer who you feel is probably... If this is Kay's dream, that she probably exists in Kay's reality, whereas the other women in this are just sort of dream fantasy women. But that's really the problem with this movie, is that I'd love to sit down and analyze this thing scene by scene by scene, because to try and come up with some kind of theory or overarching point of the movie is difficult. It's all about the details and all of the, the symbols. It, another way that it's a lot like Ivan's childhood is that on a scene-by-scene -scene basis, the, the, these movies are incredible. What it all adds up to is, I've seen this movie a few times, I'll need to watch it a dozen more times before I can sum up what it's all about and what it's trying to do, but just pick any scene and there's you know so much to talk about. You know, this movie, in a weird way, doesn't feel as symbolic to me as it just feels so warped that it's just like the truth. It's like if we stripped everything <laughs> down and like this would be physically what it looks like when you're lying or like, you know, like there's something just so honest about how dishonest this film is. Orson Welles gives himself some great lines in this movie. I'm, I'm pretty sure that this was one of them. We needn't accept everything as true, only necessary. And then I, I kind of love, too, that as much as I just, I just said that it, it portrays truth, it also is not about the truth. <laughs> no. And it, I love the conflicts and I love the layers of this. I mean, it just truly is the best and most accurate representation of Kafka's writing. It's not my favorite book of his, but which is The Castle, which has some okay movie versions, but this is just perfect. Yeah. You, um, you mentioned that scene with the painter at the end. The painter is Kay's last hope. He goes to this painter of judges. He sort of has more power than anybody in influencing the opinions of the judges because he paints them however they want to be painted so he can appeal to their vanity. And in the end, that's what's more important than anything for any of these people in authority positions is to, you know, flatter them and you'll get what you need. It's a, you know, that's the point of being in power is to just have people at your service to make you feel good about yourself or something. So he's, this painter is, is Kay's last hope and the best that the painter can do for him is to tell him ways where Kay can continually postpone his persecution, but there's no way he can ever get rid of his persecutors. Down the road, the persecution will always come no matter what you do and you can get your charges dismissed but then the cops will come and accuse you of something else and it's just this constant battle the best you can do is postpone your execution or postpone your imprisonment but it's one of the most striking scenes because they're in this sort of it's like a wooden prison 
Yeah, it is sort of a prison. He's He's got this sort of indoor shack and there's sort of slats and all these prepubescent girls are just staring in and you just see their eyes staring at, at Kay and the painter as they're discussing what they're discussing and, uh, you know, they're trying to get in and... There's, I mean, there's definitely some interesting symbolism there. Like, I, I feel like these prepubescent girls are, why they're so obsessed with the painters, you know, may, maybe has something to do with the vanity of women or, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, but it, it's so striking. And I was wondering what you made of, of that particular symbol of all the, all the little girls trying to get into the painter's shack and just being fascinated by what's going on in there. To me, it felt less about women because usually in movie logic, there's a huge gap between girls being perfect and innocent and women being evil seductresses. So I wouldn't say that little girls ever represent women in movies, especially not 60s movies. But to me, it just felt like this was like the childhood judgment. There's like a great John Mulaney joke. There's no no one more evil than 12-year-olds on the street that make fun of you. Like they know exactly the one thing that'll make you feel really sensitive. <laughs> They'll be like, look at that high-waisted man, you know, like stuff like that. And that's kind of what this to me felt like. It was more that it was like you're doing serious adult business and there's all these little children staring at you and giggling at you and pinching you and kind of tugging at you. And, you know, if they stand too close to the walls, they, they get they get hurt. And like, they're, they're like terrified, you know, they're totally paralyzed by these sort of evil little children, <laughs> you know, laughing at them, mocking them. And that's kind of what it, it felt more like to me. It was just another point of anxiety to build on the fact that Kay's quickly being dead ended. And essentially, it all boils down to that, well, there's indefinite acquittal, or there's a ostensible acquittal. And indefinite acquittal is the one that you want, but you're never going to get that because no one does. So um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the only other thing I I noticed this time through is that I grew a little impatient with Orson Welles' performance in this one. I feel like he's trying to do a Harry Lime thing from The Third Man. I was totally going to bring up The Third Man, that (laughs) tunnel chase. Oh, yeah, definitely. The Third Man, of course, was not directed by Orson Welles, but starring him. And I I think it was definitely influenced by uh, some Orson Welles' visual style. But, uh, yeah, I think Orson Welles sort of shows up in this movie like he does in The Third Man to just sort of speak the truth as this morally suspect person who you know has chosen this path of being immoral because you know what else is there to do but i don't think it works in in this movie nearly as well as it does in the third man and I, his character sort of just boils down to an elaborate lawyers are useless joke <laughs> like it kind of does in the book too though <laughs> <laughs> but that was the only downside i found this time yeah, I would say, I mean, like the downside of this was just that it, it gets very overwhelming and confusing and anxiety causing. And it's not a very long movie. It was like two hours. Mm-hmm. It does feel sometimes like it drags. But if you ask me to cut something, I don't. I can't think of anything I would specifically cut. It's a little hard to watch because the content is hard. <laughs> it also has that problem that a lot of dream logic movies have where it's just one incident leading to another and there's not a whole lot of plot keeping it moving forward and you just have to sort of go with it 
And as much as I love movies like that, they often seem a little longer than they are just because there's not a whole lot of plot momentum. And then there's just scenes where it's like there's that scene where that woman is dragging this case across this rocky quarry landscape. <laughs> I think that's my favorite Anthony Perkins moment in this movie. Well, that was a thing. It, it was like it was just in its shot. It's like all one take and the lighting is fantastic and it's so visually amazing. And it, the whole thing is intriguing. But then it was one of these like, now what? <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, that's the beauty of it. That's, you know, the whole movie is now what, essentially. Yeah, it does. It goes on and on, but I think in an effective way. You're like, how far does she have to drag this trunk? Is he going to be able to to help her drag the trunk while still holding on to this birthday cake with the other hand? (laughs) Yeah. So those are a couple of our favorites from 1962. Now we get to the fun part where we get to shit on a couple of movies from 1962. (laughs) Starting with your selection. Yep. So here's my thing. I actually had not technically seen this movie until we did this episode. So as much as I will start off by hardcore shitting on this movie, I will then pull back and actually say a few things that I did enjoy about it. But I chose Howard Hawks Hatari with John Wayne. Here's the story. I don't get cable on my television. And the only couple of channels I get besides some basic news channels and a million Polish channels and Spanish channels is movies, exclamation point, a <laughs> channel that plays movies, exclamation point. And they're actually pretty good. They actually do a decent amount of stuff interspliced with many infomercials about children's hospitals and bible talky radios and you know if you were um you know had vaginal mesh and have an issue call this number lawyer commercials so uh, you know it's kind of that thing but every night before i go to bed i turn this channel on typically because it's usually not screaming at me the way other channels are and it's usually something that's intriguing and i watch it for a little bit then i turn it off i go to bed I can't tell you how many times I've turned on movies, exclamation point, and then seen this one clip, two clips, two clips from Hatari over and over and over again. I swear to God, like for five years, I have seen both the rhino capture and the smoking the monkeys out of the tree with a rocket. I have seen these scenes so much And it was always just like 10 minutes of each of these scenes. And I was just so goddamn sick of it. I was like, this movie looks awful. (laughs) (laughs) And those are the best scenes. (laughs) Every time I turned on the television, it was always Hitari. And it's always at this one moment. Why is this? Like every single time I turn on the television between like 1045 p.m. on a Tuesday or something, it's always this one scene from Hitari. So I, I started to resent it because it was just always the same scene. And then I was sort of looking it up and then like John Wayne, I'm not a big fan of, even though I do get a kick out of him. Howard Hawks, I have typically enjoyed for the most part. So I was like, you know what? I have to choose Hitari as my hate because I just hate seeing this movie on television. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think I encouraged you a little bit because I also hate this movie. And I reassured you that the whole thing was as bad as you think it is. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, the other thing is that I didn't know anything about this movie. I thought that they were killing these animals. And so I was like, screw this stupid 60s movie. So now that I've watched Hitari, and for everyone else in the world who has definitely seen this movie, except for me, Hitari is really about a bunch of people in Africa who are catching wild animals for zoos around the world. That's it. That's the plot. I mean, and it's typical Howard Hawks. Everyone's named Pockets and rose feathers and you know i don't know i chips yeah i don't know and then john wayne's like sean but like (laughs) john wayne's like you know kind of the main like i want to call them poachers and they basically are but like they're not killing anything and then they have these like women that hang around there's like and of course they're all gorgeous and foreign and there's this one italian reporter who gets sent to take photos of them and i think she was meant to be based on a real female wildlife photographer but this character is just awful elsa martinelli who's also in the trial Oh, yeah, you're right. And But she has nothing to say or do. She's totally useless. She shows up dressed too well. And then the second that she goes out with everyone, she falls in her ass several thousand times. And they're like, women. <laughs> like, Well, she's great with baby elephants. Yes, she's the baby elephant whisperer. <laughs> and of course, we have the Henry Mancini's famous baby elephant walk comes from this movie. I thought the music was so inappropriate. I mean, it might be fine on its own. I like Henry Mancini, but this lounge music just seemed so inappropriate for African safari movie. It's terrible. It really is. And even when that song happened, I didn't get it in the context of this film at all. And the thing that pisses me off about this movie, granted, I don't like seeing animals being tortured on screen so much. And like, there's no animals that seem very happy in this movie, except for maybe the baby (laughs) elephants. But... The thing that pissed me off really is that there's no plot. This is like a string of 10 minute little scenarios that then get solved in 10 minutes and then they move on to the next one. Like for the first one, it's a rhino and then it's a giraffe and then it's a monkey and then it's an ostrich and, you know, and that's it. Like you're really the whole point of this movie was that they sent all of these actors to Africa here is footage of people wrangling really nice animals. And then they shove in this stupid romance. It's always young, beautiful women who are just in love with John Wayne, the, who to me just looks like the most overweight, lame Republican senator. <laughs> well, and, yeah, and this young, beautiful Italian woman, Dallas, falls in love with him at first sight, like is instantly like wanting to be his wife. Right, which apparently he was to some degree a sex symbol and he's meant to be this picture of manliness, but that I don't get whatsoever. Like I can see some charm of John Wayne, but not visually. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Howard Hawks is famous for, you know, his movies are just hangout movies and you just want to spend time with these characters in this environment and just watching them hang out. But the problem is that these are not very interesting characters. I mean, John Wayne is the best of them. He, I like watching him more than I like watching any of these other people, Hardy Krueger or Red Buttons. I just, anytime Red Buttons was on screen doing his comedy bits, it was yeah, you want to die miserable. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, he was not funny at all. I, I enjoyed his dancing, but otherwise, yeah, no, I agree. No, there is zero chemistry. Nobody meshes in this movie. And I'm all for hangout movies, but everyone is just so boring and bland that the thing that is the most interesting are these animals. And there's so many shots in this that are just sort of mind blowing because it's the same thing where. You know, I'm so used to expecting CGI that when I actually see these shots that they actually managed to get of a rhino charging a car as shot from the side of a car, <laughs> you know, this sort of low down angle looking at uh, an actual rhino trying to kill you. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, they're kind of torturing this animal to get this shot, essentially, but it is really impressive to watch. But uh, there's just nothing here. 
Yeah. I mean, the most fascinating parts are just watching these people doing this unusual job that you never really think about. Oh, yeah, I guess there must be somebody who's out there capturing animals in the African plains for zoos and, uh, and just watching their lifestyle and how they catch these animals is really interesting, but it would be much better served by a you know 45-minute TV documentary showing you some of the great footage, like capturing the rhinos. But, you know, all of it, how do I capture any of these animals is really interesting. And, yeah, you probably couldn't get away with releasing this movie today because of these scenes of animal cruelty. No animals are killed, but these water buffalo who are slamming their heads against jeeps are not having a good time, that's for sure. So the one thing that is really fascinating about this movie, for better or for worse, is that Howard Hawks straight up sent John Wayne out there to catch a rhino. This isn't shots like real life shots of actual people who do this for a living. This is literally John Wayne roping a rhino really he sent out the actual actors no to actually catch these animals and when the rhino gets away it's because the rhino actually got away from them and they had to go back out there and catch it and i was wondering about that because there's a lot of scenes of john wayne being perched on the front of a car they like put a seat on the front of a jeep and i mean like you just think he's gonna fall off and there's shot sort of from over his shoulder and it looks like john wayne and i, I you know i was i was kind of impressed and then i looked it up and howard hawks said that this was all these actual actors actually doing this, which is crazy. Not exclusively. It can be. I mean, you can definitely tell that John Wayne is doing a lot of his own stunt work, but he's got like this headgear and goggles on. It's got to be a professional who's doing a lot of it. They brought a professional in with them, but apparently, I mean, like he said, a lot of the action sequences had to be redubbed because John Wayne curses the whole time. (laughs) <laughs> because he's trying to get rope these animals. I don't know. I mean, this is what Howard Hawks said. I don't know if this is like to fluff up this being, um, you know, oh, it's all real and you have to see it. You know, it became what, as you said, the eighth highest grossing film. And in a lot of ways, I mean, there's that scene where the ostrich gets out of the pen and all of these actors are trying to like get these ostriches back in and, and you know, distract them and, and push them to the best while well, these ostriches are charging them. And I kept thinking like, you idiot. And there's like this also this happy Henry Mancini music playing like, ha look at these dumb birds that look like uh, poodles or something. And and I'm like, dude, you guys are so lucky that you didn't get your face and your body just like ripped to shreds by that raptor's talon. <laughs> like there's no way that is not like a fun, cute thing. Like ostriches are like way more terrifying than those wildebeests even. I mean, so much of that is played for comedy. And I actually can totally understand why this was a popular movie if this tone of comedy suits your taste then it's probably a whole lot of fun to watch like the the elephant chase through this african city that's uh full of white seems people to be 90 percent white yep. people yeah <laughs> well and indians which i know that there are a lot of indians in that part of africa but i don't know maybe that's true to life that whatever city they were in there were not many Africans in it. I mean, it's a good portrait of white colonialism. I mean, like all the black characters in this have no names, barely have speaking parts. They're sort of like infantilized as being savage tribes. Uh, They even stick Dallas in blackface at some point because they're saying, oh, they're saying that you're the elephant whisperer. You're like the, the queen of elephants and... It's this totally obnoxious scene. And then, yeah, it's pretty crazy that there's barely any black people in this movie and granted i'm sure that there were plenty of white established towns that did not cater to black people Mm -hmm. uh but you know it's kind of obnoxious there are some interesting ethnographic 
scenes in there where it sort of gets into some of the tribal customs. Like I thought that well, the Maasai well, where it talks about how they won't dig if it needs repairs, they won't do it themselves because they're cattle people. And you know, some of the traditional dances that the tribesmen do is, is pretty interesting. But yeah, it is odd that this movie set in Africa can't have a black character of any note. All in all, I think a good hate choice. Yeah. I stick by my guns. I was right, even though I was wrong about the nature of their capturing these animals. It was insipid and boring. <laughs> and it's funny because, I mean, even looking on like Letterboxd or stuff, like seeing what, you know, my fellow uh, movie lovers seem to have way more fun with this movie than I did. But I mean, I will say again, like I, the animals are, are gorgeous. I did think it was interesting that it was written by Lee Brackett, who's a female sci-fi writer who co-wrote the script for The Big Sleep and uh, some other Howard Hawks movies. And uh, she actually was brought in to do the original script for The Empire Strikes Back. And she still, I think she may have co screenwriting credit on that movie even though i'm not sure any of her stuff was used in the empire strikes back but i think her specialty was love triangles i think howard hawk sort of gave her all this animal capture footage and said okay lee write a story around this right and so she just kind of brought in uh, a couple of really boring love triangles and said okay there's your story I think that is what happened i think that he went and shot footage and then they figured it out afterwards and it's obvious yeah it's not a terrible movie. You're right. The cast doesn't have much chemistry, but I can see why it was popular. I was just bored, and I'd much rather watch a more obviously terrible movie like my hate choice this week, The Chapman Report. Pretty incompetently made, especially consider that George Cukor, classic Hollywood director George Cukor, who would go on to do you know, My Fair Lady a, a year or two after this, uh, you know, directed it. It's actually interesting to see how low Howard Hawks and George Cukor had sunk at this point in their careers. Like the studio system was falling apart in the in the late fifties, early sixties, but these old classic directors are still sticking around. They're still getting work, but they couldn't really. I mean, I guess Howard Hawks could connect with the current audience because Hitari was a hit, but, you know, they were definitely not at the top of their games at, at this point. The Chapman Report is based on a novel that's based on the Kinsey Report. So it's about the sexual habits of women. The story of the, the Chapman Report uh, follows these four different women who have agreed to be interviewed for these sex reports. And each of the four has a different sort of sexual dysfunction. And each one of their stories is sort of played in a in a different genre the the Jane Fonda story is, is she's frigid she's a frigid widow and uh, and her interviewer becomes her lover so that's played for romance and then the Shelley Winters story is uh, she's a dissatisfied housewife her husband loves her but is not giving her enough physical attention so she seeks it outside of the house and so it's that's kind of a melodrama and the uh, Claire Bloom story is she's a nymphomaniac divorcee the only way she can relate to men is by sleeping with them. And uh, that's kind of a horror story. It, it ends in gang rape and suicide. But she deserved it. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if you like sex that much. Right. But I did really like Wash Dylan, the musician who's really responsible for her downfall. Corey Allen. I want to see more of him. And 
Who am I miss? Oh, the Glynis Johns story is a comedy. She's this very sophisticated housewife who needs to experience all of life, so thinks that she needs to have an affair with a younger man, this uh, sort of muscle-bound meathead that she meets on the beach, and decides, oh yeah, I'm going to have sex with him, just to have that experience. I love my husband, and you know, I'm not going to tell him about it, but he'll also understand why I'm doing this. And Glynis Johns, of course, is Mrs. Banks from Mary Poppins. And we also saw her in, in The Sundowners hitting on Peter Ustinov. But it, it's sort of weird to see her so sexy in this movie. <laughs> but yeah, these four stories of completely different tones just really don't jive. But they're so kind of extreme that I find this movie fun to watch, as incompetent as it is. You hated it. I just thought it was so boring. Really? Everyone was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> And the problem is that the plot was good. You know, it's basically like these Kinsey reports, right? You know, like we're going to take this anonymous survey of many women and we're going to see what their deal is. And they totally drop the thread of that. And instead they focus on these these four women and then going through like how to solve their issues. And a lot of their issues are either not totally issues or they're like way bigger than like sexual preference <laughs> and then you have these two stories that are like really depressing and then two stories that are really like dopey and the depressing one is the nymphomaniac who is very 1960s idea of like because a single woman that casually sleeps around is then being asked to be gang raped essentially and that you know, she regrets it the next day. It's like this sort of framing this as something like, like I didn't think she was a nymphomaniac at all. <laughs> In my definition of a nymphomaniac, she did not look like she enjoyed sex as much as men were continually raping her or that she maybe was in a scenario where some guy literally creeps into her house, tries to rape her and then gets stopped. And then she feels so low about herself that she figures, well, this is the only man that wants me and then goes back to him. Like, that's not nymphomania. That's just <laughs> hardcore, terrible depression. And then when she kills herself because she's alone and unwanted, no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, well, it makes sense, you know? <laughs> Too bad. Right. It's just really this awfully depressing and creepy storyline. And then you're contrasting that with that whole thing about like well she's hitting on younger guys and she's this like flighty pseudo-intellectual who you know wants to live life to the fullest I, what's that character's name <laughs> i didn't even make an effort to even write down characters names in this i was just you know Teresa. i mean i it's glennis johns I, yeah these characters all have names but they're really it's about these four actresses all of whom I really like. And I think that none of them embarrass themselves in this terrible movie. I mean, I think Jane Fonda probably comes off the worst of the four of them. Yeah, I mean, Jane Fonda, I mean, on one hand, I hate that she's also like shown as frigid when it's like, she also clearly has way bigger issues than being, uh, you know, uptight. She has like some hardcore anxiety issues, but she's also, you know, was in an, an emotionally abusive relationship. And she's got a serious electro complex too. Like she's got a thing with her dad that's a little creepy. Yeah. And then I don't know. Like, and then also, but then you feel terrible for her because she comes in for what is being told as an anonymous survey. And then the guy who is interviewing her follows her home. And she even says to him, she says, they said it would be anonymous. And now you're in my house staring at me. You know, you have to leave here right now. And it's like, yeah, no, this guy's a complete and utter creep and he needs to go. And this is really awful and creepy. And then, of course, that's the love story. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, he's this blandly sexy guy, Ephraim Zimblis Jr. So uh, 
you know, if he were ugly, then she would have, uh, it would have been horrible that he violated this confidentiality. But, you know, he's he's kind of sexy, so it makes it okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> and then and the ending of that, of her story is so terrible because, I mean, number one, you have these other psychiatrists who are now discussing her by name for something that was meant to have been anonymous, that <laughs> all of these doctors are just like, well, I heard from, uh, you know, Jane Fonda the other day. And they were like, well, she should be proud of being moral and not be so neurotic about it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that's not her issue and then never mind that he comes in uh you know her boyfriend now comes into her house and says your friends are all bored with your problems you have this fear because you know he was insensitive and that because of his insensitivity you know like he's created this complex in you and you need to fucking get over it <laughs> and it's like you know you're not being very sensitive right now yourself mister <laughs> you're like coming into her house and telling her that like you know like the problem is everyone's bored of you and you need to make more of an effort to, to solve your issues like yeah great psychology <laughs> well you know as much as i like the four of these actresses none of them are able to make their stories convincing in any way and all their sexual dysfunction it's exactly the opposite of david and lisa actually they all have their their sort of hang-ups but it's impossible to relate to any of them because they're just sort of drawn in this really shallow way that it's obvious they're trying to use sexual dysfunction as a just as a taking off point for a you know sex heavy story to bring up dirty words and dirty acts to the greatest extent that you possibly can in a early 60s movie and i'll admit that that's the whole reason i wanted to see this movie in the first place i, I watched it because i'm sort of fascinated by this period where you could get away with certain stuff but not other things and there's this sort of opening up of, of being able to address sexuality in the movies and this was sort of groundbreaking at the time like it wasn't I don't think it made a lot of money. I don't think a whole lot of people went to see it, but it was definitely talked about because it's the most, you know, for 1962, it's incredibly sexually frank. So that's why I've always thought, oh, I've got to check out this movie, see what, what kind of boundaries it pushes. And it, you know, it's just a terrible movie. It, attempting to be the most talked about movie of the year, but it, it isn't able to create any kind of compelling story well, because it doesn't, like, again, like, it loses the thread of what is actually interesting about the Kinsey reports, which is acknowledging that women have sexual desire and, you know, that people have these interior sex lives. And then the whole movie, it, it completely walks that back. And I was so disappointed with Cucor because I feel like it previously, his movies are pretty sympathetic and, and nuanced towards women. But this one, apparently, they had re-edited... Uh, they brought in a different director to, to reshoot the ending so that it was about this sort of masculine defined definition of women's sexuality. And it is. I mean, the whole thing is super sexist and toes the line. It, it, you know, it starts off with, well, you know, what if we ask people to be honest and you have this other, I don't know, this other doctor, rival doctor who says, well, that's a very slippery slope. You know, if people are honest, then they're going to start questioning, uh, you know, if they're normal or not. And that can really uh, ruin a woman's interior life. And then the movie, like, spends two hours being like, and it's yeah. true. He's like a minister, isn't he? He's like, why are you focusing on sex? You should be focusing on love. And if, right. You know, if you're trying to separate sex from love, then we'll fall into you know, your moral disrepair. People will be having sex without love. And this is terrible. And you need to think about what you're doing with these reports. And... I mean, that's all Cucor there. You have to blame him for that. And whether you can blame him for that ending, though, where it says, you know, it's basically saying that the women in this movie are, 
or abnormal women. You know, 87% of women are satisfied <laughs> with their marriages and have normal sex lives. But, you know, these, this sampling that you've seen in this movie, these are, these are exceptions to the rule. Right. Well, that's the thing. They could have brought up that attitude, and I expected that attitude from a movie from 62 uh, in the beginning, but then for it to have them spend all of this time in order to just be like, and this was a terrible idea, and <laughs> all of these women were ruined from it, and someone even died. Yeah, well, that was a terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what can we say about the movies of 1962? Well, I think this one was interesting because we very much cemented that we both love and hate very similar things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and granted, now uh, this is partially because of obviously what we chose and then obviously where we have ranked everything that we took the two most conservative films and put them in our hate. <laughs> Even though, as you said earlier, Hitari was quite popular and it's still, I think, considered, a, you know, people seem to like it. So... But then here we have creeping on the sides like a Kafka novel, uh, these little movies coming out about dissatisfaction, which obviously happens in every decade and, and every time. But it is kind of interesting things like in David and Lisa, things like mental illness is, you know, it's here's this dart being thrown about the fringes of society being in some way smarter and, and almost more moral and more pure than the standard norms, as it were, or you know, Yvonne's childhood is pretty staunchly anti-war. The trial, I mean, is just, it hits everything. Yeah, well, sort of like David and Lisa, it's saying that the world is crazy. You have to be a little bit insane to fit into it. And then the inheritance being very much about the corruption of capitalism. So I think it's, it's kind of interesting because all of these themes definitely get a much louder voice by the end of the decade. So yeah, it is nice to acknowledge whether or not these were where it started. They definitely were not. And these are all movements that even as they're exploding at the end of the 60s had long since started decades before, you know, even in the 40s and the 50s. But it's, it's interesting. It's coming out. It's all, all the seeds are planted. Yeah. Well, I mean, the big Hollywood movies that we did, Hitari and Chapman Report, are still, I mean, they're directed by classic Hollywood directors. So they, they've got that very safe, very conservative stamp. There's none of this more experimental nature to it that we're seeing in a lot of foreign movies at the time with the, you know, all the new waves that were happening in, in the world and you know beginning to be seen in the independent movies in America. And I think that's part of why we were so disappointed with them. We sort of jumped into the 60s thing, wanting to see uh, how movies sort of push boundaries in terms of how they were made and just telling stories in different ways and to be stuck watching these really like old-fashioned sort of things is uh you know, they're kind of tough to get through and that's what's popular yeah. that's what the people wanted yeah i mean the mass audiences didn't necessarily want things to change but the sort of undercurrent this small audience that was clamoring for something a little more interesting was starting to make its presence known and uh, yeah, the other four movies that we saw are definitely capitalizing on uh, some of the more uh, groundbreaking techniques of the time. You know, in, in certain ways, we'll see a lot more of those groundbreaking techniques creeping into the American mainstream, and we'll see it less and less in some of the foreign art movies. And hopefully in these Kiss, Mary Kill episodes, we'll be able to trace that pattern a little bit. Or you just get to see what me and Bart hate. <laughs> <laughs> More than anything, I think we started these year portraits thinking we could say something about what was happening, the zeitgeist of the year, but uh, really just ends up saying more about what me and you were drawn to in movies more than anything. And we hope you're all going out there watching some of these things, that we're not just doing all your homework for you. <laughs> 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.